Hello, and thank you for joining us today for this BAFTA Masterclass on producing with Andy Harris. Um, on behalf of BAFTA, I'd like to just tell you that we're lucky enough to have around 40 minutes of discussion with Andy, and then there'll be 20 minutes or so for questions at the end, which um, you can submit through this mechanism online using the Q&A feature only. Please don't use the chat function, because if you do that, that won't be monitored for questions and we won't be able to see uh, what you're asking. Also, I hope you will be able to bear with us as we uh, work out some of the technical capabilities that limit what we're able to do. We are going to show clips, but they might, might not be the uh, quality that you're used to with the events that are held at BAFTA. Um, we also have live captioning available for this session, so uh, that will take a little time to get working too. Um, and if you'd be kind enough to complete the poll on your screen now as everybody joins the room, that would be great. It'll give us a sense of the demographic that we have. And uh, in the meantime, I'd like to introduce you to Andy Harris, who's the CEO of Left Bank um, and uh, producer who's been working in every form and shape of the um, industry for the last 20 or so years. Andy, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Tony. 20 or so years, that's very kind. A little bit longer than that, but hey. Uh, yes, well, I meant to really say that, you know, your Wikipedia page uh, breaks up your career into three acts, Andy. And uh, I wondered if we would be able to start at the very beginning, actually, where you were a director and a producer, but you were focusing really on arts programmes and documentaries before you moved into fiction and uh, perhaps you could tell us something about how you broke in and how you started. Well I was I was lucky enough to be at Granada when I was a kid from I joined Granada 21 as a young um, journalist come um, a researcher and uh, I had to you know the great pleasure privilege really of working with extraordinary people like Tony Wilson who was Mr Manchester for those who know their music and know their TV history. Uh, and the early years of Granada, Granada had this incredible uh, policy of, of, of making you work in every part of the television. So you might spend three months on a political show, three months on a talk show, three months on a soccer show, three months on an entertainment show. You, you were given an all-round training by Granada and whizzed around. So I had five or six years of Granada uh, and, and I ended up doing world in action and disappearing world shows as a, as a researcher, went all over the world. But Granada didn't, uh, didn't believe in me, really, even though I had a fantastic time there. And I loved Manchester. Uh, I still love Manchester. Uh, but um, uh, when I was about 25, 26, I failed my third producer's board because it was all very structured and unionised in those days. And Granada, the, the guy who was running Granada's uh, the middle level, I mean, people, I guess people like me can make me producers, simply said he didn't think I had any future in television whatsoever. And he thought I should go and do something else. So... Um, I was a bit huffed. I was pretty angry, actually, to honestly. But hey, uh, I left and I went freelance and I began, I got a job on a company that was making documentaries for Channel 4 on the history of Africa. And I went off to basically do that. And that was my first proper directing job. And I spent about 18 months in Africa. And um, I moved to London, lost my girlfriend. And I, I think my whole life started to change and, and, and uh, dramatically around being in London and about being part of the new freelance community of the 80s and that led me quite quickly on to working for the South Bank show and Arena and lots and lots of documentaries in Peru. I did four films in Peru and I did a lot of stuff with Jonathan Ross, movie, a movie with Lenny Henry and all sorts of various things really, arts and I got increasingly into comedy I suppose that was it and that was partly, partly through working with Lenny Henry. I made a South Bank show about Lenny Henry and then I did a sort of stand-up movie with him. 
And um, I was fascinated by the way comedians operate and the kind of sense of, uh, well, well, just the kind of, I mean, the talent they have, but actually just sort of standing on stage and having to make people laugh is an amazing, it, it takes amazing courage. And I got very fascinated. I suppose Lenny was the first person that, um, the first talent that I, that I learned to sort of have a proper relationship with actually. So well, that was something I actually wanted to talk to you about because it strikes me looking at the breadth of your career that you have really strong talent relationships uh, and really strong relationships with creators, whether they're Lenny Henry or Carolina Hearn or Peter Morgan um, or Ken Branner, people who clearly trust you and who you've built repeat business with and longstanding um, shows with. And I, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how you... Uh, how you deal with the eccentricity, should we say, sometimes of different talents? <laughs> well, I think that I think the primary role as a producer, whether you're a drama producer or a comedy producer or any kind of producer, essentially is to nurture the talent that you're working with. That's what I became more fascinated by. Not so much the subjects. As a documentary maker, you'll become fascinated by the story, the subject. But what really started to fascinate me was the talent I could work with and my belief in that talent. When I latched onto a talent, I mean, there was Lenny and there was Jonathan Ross for quite a long time. Uh, and then we started to move into Rick Mayle and Carolina Hearn and, uh, you know, and Cold Feet and all that kind of stuff. When I, when I latched into either a piece of talent or a talented writer, I, it just got me very, very excited. And I realized by the, by the late 80s that that was my that's really what I was good at. That, and that's what I really enjoyed. And that's what I thought a producer really should do, you know, or should be. It's, it's somebody who is determined to bring talent to the fore, to, to make the talent flower, if you like, and to, to help that talent, whatever talent it is, whether it's a writing talent or performing talent, realize their potential. I, I find that tremendously exciting and I share the journey, the excitement of bringing talent to the fore. It really, it really thrills me. And I get very excited by talent. I mean, I can't, when I meet someone or I read a script by a writer that, that interests me, I, I mean, I, you know, I can't sleep. I think, God, this is amazing. We could do this, we could do that. You know, that's, that's what gets me up in the morning. But it took me, I guess, until my mid thirties to really realize that I wasn't really a documentary producer director. I was fundamentally a producer. And a producer is someone, basically, in my view, who is probably multi-skilled, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades, I think, in a sense, which I think is why television is rather good for me, uh, and somebody who can handle lots of different projects at different times. If you're an obsessive sort of person, you tend to be directors. Directors by nature, particularly drama directors, have to be obsessive. They just simply do, because they're literally going on set every day, working with a crew of maybe 60, 80 people, and everything they, you know, they're taking their, every, the director takes the cue, everyone takes the cue from the director. The producer's different. The producer is about making sure that set or that cast or that director is happy and that the work is really great and, and everything that makes the work great is in place. A great crew, a great designer, a great, you know, a great DOP, whatever it is that's need. So the whole process fascinates me from the idea to the writer, to the choosing of the writer, to the casting, and also the selling. The other thing I love is selling shows. I can't think of anything better. It's also, you know, hard work and, and also at times very depressing, but it, it, it gives me the most excitement. I wondered if you could take us back to 2007 where, um, when you decided to set up uh, Left Bank and what the vision for the company was then, and um, maybe give us a sense of how that's changed over the last 13 years. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I'd set up the company because I was really happy at uh, ITV. I enjoyed myself a lot at ITV, but after I'd done The Queen, the movie, it, it, it felt the right time to go. And, you know, 
it was a, a wonderful time in a sense for setting up a company because you could own your own rights and there was an increasing appetite. The BBC was loosening, ITV was loosening. And you could get a sense that broadcasters finally were realizing that perhaps some of the better shows were made outside broadcasters than inside. Uh, and so it seemed a good opportunity to get out and, and do it. And um, what had always interested me, and, and I became fascinated, I suppose, uh, while I was at Granada, uh, was the international market. Uh, but it was particularly Prime Suspect that really opened it all up for me, because that obviously ha had always had a success in the States. And when I revived it, the interest in Helen uh, Mirren was just as great as ever, and the show did incredibly well. And quite quickly, you know, I was, was at the Emmys and all that kind of stuff, and I suddenly you know, this is what I, this is, I, this was interesting, I thought, the international market was interesting. So right from the off, the idea was to, was to focus Left Bank on being an international drama company. I mean, obviously I couldn't have anticipated the streamers, etc. but I still believe that the international market was developing, the global market was developing, and I felt sure that if one could start to move the company along more challenging lines, and, then, and Wallander was an early experiment, as was Strike Bank, uh, that's where the bigger market was. That was the bigger game, I think. That was the play. That, was, that really was the idea. And obviously, Wander and Strike Back and the other shows you did at the beginning showed that was going to work. But I'm interested with The Crown, for example, where uh, that, to some extent, Netflix was the outsider or the, the new kid on the block. Um, how you managed to look at what you could bring as an international producer to a company like Netflix that had ambitions to expand internationally with a project like The Crown. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, The, the Crown, of course, came, around, uh, came about because of my long relationship with Peter Morgan. Uh, Peter was really, you know, uh, becoming uh, the prime of his, of his writing life and I'd, I'd written two or three movies. We'd done Damage United together and... Uh, uh, he wrote this play about the, you know, Helen Mirren came back to do this play that I was involved in and out of the play we developed the idea, or he developed the idea, uh, for The Crown. And it just immediately, I suppose the sense of, the, the challenge with The Crown was twofold. One, the, the play had gone to Broadway and had been very successful in the UK. So we knew, and of course the film had done incredibly well, gone to, you know, nominated for an Oscar, so we knew there was a big appetite for, for dramas about the royal family. And I was, I think we were all pretty confident that it would do well uh, in the States and that it was something that was going to break out and be bigger than just something in the UK. Um, the, the, the challenge, of course, was selling it into America when it was a very, very British series. So when we went to the meetings, you know, the HBOs, the Showtimes, um, all, the, the, all those companies were very, very interested in doing it. I mean, they loved Peter's writing and, and Stephen Daldry was a part of the team. So it was a classy team, but they were worried it was just too much British, British, um, British content. But for Netflix, who at the time, we didn't realize this, were about to open up globally, it was the perfect show. So we were in the right place at the right time with a writer at the very peak of his, of, of his powers and who had a very, very clear vision for what that show was going to be. And, and indeed, you know, he leads it today with incredible success. Um, so it was a game changer for us, obviously, and it became a game changer for Netflix. But what's interesting, I think, if you look back now, I mean, that was, we sold it, I think, in 2000, and we, we came up with it in about 2013, sold it in 2014. So it was only six years ago, and six years ago when we sold it to Netflix, it was something of a, of a bold move. I don't think a gamble is the right word, but they only at that time had really done House of Cards 
Orange is the Only Black. They had only just started doing, I mean, you could count the amount of original programs they had on their thing on one hand. Uh, so in that sense, it was a bold move. And if you look at Netflix today, you know, they've gone from being the, the, the bold move to the establishment. You know, in eight, in, in little under six years, I don't know, eight years, six years, they've literally transformed uh, the world that we, that we operate now. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of unbelievable what's happening and how fast the change is. Um, well, I think in a way that, that brings me to the show that you currently have with Netflix that dropped this weekend and I think is now number one in 20 countries, I'm told, um, White Lines. And I wondered if you might be able to tell us a little bit about how that came about, particularly given it's a dual language show set in the UK and in Spain. And that's a different experiment altogether that you've managed to master alongside. I mean, I, I, you know, one of the most exciting things about the way television has developed is that people now accept that people speak their own languages. If you're Romanian, you speak Romanian. If you're German, you speak German. You know, the days of Wallander, which that was considered kind of daring that we took, we set the show in Sweden, but they spoke English. Now, I wouldn't do that now. You, I, don't, I wouldn't do that kind of show now. That, that seemed groundbreaking. That was 10 years ago. Now, I think people expect people from wherever they are to speak their language. And what interested me was, well, initially it was prompted by Narcos. I watched Narcos and I thought, wow, this is amazing. When I watch Narcos, it's, it's, I don't really notice as it switches from Spanish to, uh, to, to English. And Narcos was a massive hit. I think a bit of a surprise hit actually for Netflix, but they suddenly realized the Hispanic market uh, was opening up. And, uh, and since I watched Narcos, I thought, wow, got to come up with something that, uh, that, uh, that has a, a Spanish-English. And, and, and as some people know, I've, you know had a, I've been lucky enough to have a house for a long time in Ibiza, and, uh, where I spend a little bit of time every year. And, and, and it has a fascinating story, Ibiza. It simply does. It's one of those extraordinary places. It's a very international island and famous for its clubs and its music. But the, the people that activated that club scene were the Brits in this extraordinary sort of thing in this early, the early 90s. Many DJs um, made the, 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 the trek from Manchester or London across the island and got involved in creating clubs and creating incredible, an incredible scene. And so I was always, always interested in that story and wanted to tell that story somehow, but also wanted to tell the, a, a modern day story about Ibiza as well. So I, you know, had, I, I pulled all this together. And we went in search for a, a Spanish writer. I thought the most important thing about White Lines was to find a Spanish writer. And we were incredibly lucky and turned up uh, Alex Pina, who now, of course, is internationally known <laughs> for Money Heist or La Casa de Papel. And we got to him just before uh, La Casa de Papel had been picked up by Netflix. So at the time, he had done shot and transmitted two series of La Casa, had gone out in Spain and had been cancelled. So he was actually at a bit of a loose end. We caught, we'd sent him this idea, he really liked it. He had been a journalist in Mallorca many, many years ago, so he had a real feel for the lyrics. He thought it was a fun idea for the two companies to collaborate, and we went down to Madrid, we got completely drunk together, had a great time, and cooked up this, this sort of plot and started working on it. And then literally three months later, this show that had been cancelled in Spain was bought by Netflix for literally $2. They bunged it out without any promotion. And within two weeks, the thing was number one around the world. So we then went into LA about a month later, met myself and Alex and Sharon Hoof, who was the executive producer with me. And Alex had a translator. And we pitched white lines around LA in Spanish. And <laughs> which was pretty mad. No one in LA speaks Spanish, of course. I mean, there was a translator, but I mean, it was a pretty wild idea. And, uh, you know, most people turned it down. Uh, well, everyone turned it down, actually, uh, except for Netflix. And I think Netflix, 
well, I, if all honesty, I think they were just, I, th I think they, they was, oh, I don't think it was against their instincts to, to, I think they just wanted to do us a bit of a favor. I think they just signed Alex out a big hit. We were doing the crown. Oh Christ, we better let these guys do it. It seems a bit mad, but they did. And that was it. So we, you know, it's, it's been amazing. I mean, to suddenly, I mean, here is globalization, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is the incredible thing. So you make a show. It takes, this, this is about, this all happened that we started, that, that story is two and a half years old. So we go up this weekend and on Friday night, the show is released across the world. And by today, I mean, I, I'm sorry to be a little bit boastful, but it is incredible. It's, it's number one in 22 countries, including the US today. And they didn't, no promotion in the US whatsoever. So, wow. I mean, you know, I grew up in a time of TV, if you had a, you know, top of the ratings of the, of the BBC or ITV, you'd be jolly pleased. But to have a sort of number one show in 22 countries around the world, it's sort of crazy, isn't it? It's, it's, it's hard to visualize. It's hard to... It's, it's sort of incredible, but that is globalization. You know, the globalization of television is here right now. And so, well, you know, that's what interests me, big shows that you can globalize. And I, and I think it's interesting you say that. I remember when we were working on The Crown together that the, that, that first weekend, I had more calls from people across the world than I've ever done on anything else who just all chose to watch it at the same time. And clearly that's, that's the new norm. But how much has this current pandemic affected the sense of whether you need the promotion, who's watching what? How, how much of a difference have you felt through this White Lines experience um, about the situation that we're currently in? Well, I think it's, it's been hard to, it's been hard to um, promote White Lines um, in a lockdown situation. <laughs> but so, so that's one down, downside, obviously, because we shouldn't get on the road, we couldn't have any parties, we couldn't do, you know, press was limited. But, on the other hand, if we were in a lockdown situation, you've got a captive audience, clearly. And so uh, it's undoubtedly benefited that hugely. I mean, look, when we set out to do White Lines, one of the selling points was blue sky, glorious beaches, sunshine. You know, people love these. This is an important part of people's viewing experience. When you, if, you, if you make a show that looks good, you feel good, et cetera, et cetera. As long as you get the drama, right, of course. But, it, you know, it's all part of the package is to sell, you're selling something. I mean, White Lines is designed as, a, as an entertaining show. That's what, it, that, that's what, we, that's what we made. We wanted to make a, a ride, a proper full-on ride with great music, great class, old and young. I mean, you know, and, and, and you know, most people get, I understand that and, and seem to be enjoying it, which is kind of amazing. But, what, but the thing about a, a Netflix release now, it's, it's, what, it's like a movie. You know, in the, the, the studios have always released movies over the weekend. Everything was about that week, uh, the opening weekend, the, the Friday and the Saturday, the box office. That's what's happened to television. It's about your opening weekend now. You need to land and you need to land big. And, and in the end of the day, the bigger Netflix gets, the better your chance is if you catch it because no one promotes the show better than Netflix. That's the truth, actually. And Netflix know that. You know, in a sense, once you're a Netflix subscriber, you're getting the emails, you're getting bombarded with the new shows and, you, and they want you to get in. Oh, it's Friday. There's another new show dropping. Better watch it this weekend. And then another Friday comes. You know, that's, that's, that's what they're doing. That's the, that's the world we're in. But clearly that, you know, you've mastered the new international model. What, what does it actually mean for the more um, local stories, for British culture, for your interest and investment in things that are actually terribly important, but more peculiarly British, shall we say? Well, I think it's, it makes it even more important that we look after our, our British culture and that we nurture the institutions which are primarily designed to showcase it. I think, you know, when you have British culture like the crowd, 
that's a sort of that is an international brand, if you like. It's an odd way to describe the crown, but it is. And the royal British, the British royal family is an international brand. But when you're looking at much more um, indigenous stories, and I suppose the quiz is a good example, um, it's really important that there is a strong ITV, there is a strong Sky and or Channel 4 or, or BBC, which is going to continue to be there to nurture and to showcase British talent and British stories, indigenously British stories that may or may not break out, but don't have to. So, you know, Quiz did have an American uh, uh, end user, of course, but it wasn't easy to sell uh, Quiz actually in the States. Uh, it was, it was, uh, but anyway, we sold it at the end, but, uh, you know, going, going, you know, I always try and sell everything before I start, obviously. Um, but Sitting in Limbo, which was uh, featured in the showreel, that is a new film that no one's seen yet. It's going out on the BBC in three weeks' time. That is, that is, um, uh, that is something that, you know, we're incredibly proud of. It's a single film about uh, a man who is caught up in the scandal of, the, of, of Windrush and after 50 years in the UK was suddenly, literally suddenly arrested and dumped into a, into a holding camp and told him he was about to be deported. And this is you know, clearly the result of an aggressive immigration policy introduced by the Conservative government of the, of the time, two, two years ago. Um, this was a really important, powerful story. It was partly broken by The Guardian. And uh, it seemed to me something that we, we really needed to dramatize. And when you, when you watch it, even though you sort of know the story, it's like, it's very hard to believe that a story like this could happen in, 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 in 2018, 2019 in the UK. Now, the BBC were absolutely brilliant. They commissioned that in a week. They really did. They, they, we took them the idea and they commissioned it. And, uh, and that is why uh, that is brilliant. But also it's really important that we, we, we look after the BBC. I mean, of course, everyone on this, uh, on this broadcast will we'll be nodding in agreement about that. But it, the, the fight to preserve the BBC as a properly functioning, well-funded um, uh, institution, broadcasting institution is absolutely fundamental for this country going forward. I have a great undying belief in British culture and in British, and in British broadcasting. And even though I love making global shows, I'm just as excited about making quiz and sitting in limbo. It's very, very important that we do this. You know, in the end, the amount of British content that the likes of an Amazon or Netflix will make is going to be very small in real terms. If you really look at the Netflix shows and say, well, how many British shows are on that? You go, oh yeah, there's Top Boy and the Sex Education and they're both fantastic. And then, you, and then you're going to start to struggle. You know, it, 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 it's really difficult. Well, two drama series, that's great. But I mean, how many, IT, how many drama series does ITV make in the year or BBC do? And when you watch something like Normal People, which I've just watched, and most of us have watched, I mean, that's just brilliant, isn't it? It's a fantastically well-made show. It's perfect for the BBC. It's modern. It's beautifully realised. But, you know, just, it's fantastic. It's exemplary, really. Well, I also think, looking in, at your own body of work, that you can see that that commitment to political subjects and to uh, British subjects can lead to huge commercial success. I mean, the the deal as the precursor to the Queen as the precursor to the Crown is a really good example of what may have been an unlikely beginning of pairings of individuals that led to something which has gone on and dominated the world landscape. And yeah. I, I, I wondered if you had, if you could tell me a little bit about how that came about and what you thought you were doing then, and if you thought it would lead to what you what it has led to. What you mean? It feels like the deal. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, I think firstly to say, you know, firstly, I mean, I studied politics at university, and and, and then, you know, if you're uh, to to grow up and be sort of educated in television in a company like Granada, which was a distinctly left-leaning company, 
uh, in the 80s, uh, the 70s, well, all the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s, and working on a show like World in Action, you, you know, one is left with uh, a very clear desire to, to make television important, to make, to, 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 to make change, to be disruptive, to cause problems. I mean, television should do that. I mean, documentaries can do that, but drama should as well. Dramas should ask questions. That's not that every drama should do that, but you should always have a commitment to making dramas that do. The world needs to, the politicians need to be challenged no more now than ever. I mean, it's, it's almost unbelievable the state of, the, uh, of, of this country and this the government. No surprise, is it, that Brazil and the US and the UK, three, three um, uh, um, premiers who have very similar uh, political leanings and, and, and very similar style, none of them took, it, took the virus very seriously, and yet all three are countries are very sadly at the top of the death toll. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. So these things, politicians have to be challenged, absolutely have to be challenged all the time. And uh, that is partly our role. And whether you're a drama producer or a documentary producer, I think it should be part of the, you know, of your, of your, of your, um, of one's uh, portfolio, remit. And how easy is it to generate those kinds of projects? Do you start with the writer or do you, do you start with the idea? Do people come to you or do you tend to go out and see? Well, it's a bit of both, actually. I mean, Peter Morgan, the deal was Peter Morgan's idea. It was a brilliant idea. And uh, Peter Morgan, you know, it, the deal was where Peter really found his, his, his voice. And uh, there's no better contemporary writer of, uh, of politi contemporary political cultural history than Peter. You know, he's, it's, he's in the field of his own. I mean, literally. I mean, The Crown is an extraordinary piece of work. He writes every single script, pretty much. And... Uh, uh, you know, he has a very, very clear vision for it. He, he's always had a massive clarity about how to how to present the stories that fascinate him. Um, so it, it, it always starts with the writer, really. I mean, you might be lucky enough to have an idea, but, um, you know, on Sitting in Limbo, for example, the breakthrough on that was not so much having the idea about doing something about Windrush. I'm sure lots of people thought that. It's just that we were lucky enough to be introduced by an agent to the writer, Stephen Thompson, who's the half-brother of, of Anthony Bryant, who is the lead character, whose story it is. So Stephen is a novelist in his own right. He's a professor at the university. Uh, and uh, he obviously his, his brother's story was extraordinary and he wanted to try and tell it. He, he, didn't, he had never written a screenplay before, but you know, he's a writer. So one thing led to another. I was incredibly excited by having him write it because it was clear that he, he would write it like no other person. How could he not? It was his brother's story, you know, and it, that's why the film is so powerful. Um, it was funny because the first draft he did, he sort of slightly misunderstood. I think he just got straight to work and he, and he came in and I read the script and, uh, and he changed all the names and he changed a few things. I went, I don't understand why, why the names all changed. He said, oh, I, th I thought it would be better if we, did, if we just changed the names. And I said, no, no. I said, this story is absolutely extraordinary. We've got to have absolutely the truth. No, it's hard to believe what this story and I, we need it absolutely you know, researched and, and, and to, 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 to the point. And, and he got very excited about that, of course, and, uh, and that's what we did. And how intimately involved can you be, given the volume of material Left Bank is producing now? Do you delegate a lot? Do you handpick which ones you're involved in? What's your structure within the company? Well, that's, that's a good question. I mean, look, I have a fantastic team. I'm very lucky. And building a company is not easy. You, 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 you know, we, you try to find a mix of people. You need all sorts of, you need a very different mix to, to run a company. You need those that are very studious and those that are very enterprising. And you need, a, you, you know, some people have great ideas but can't really execute them. Other people can execute other people's ideas really well. You, and it's all important. It doesn't really matter. 
so I suppose there are some uh, some stories. Yes, those uh, sometimes I get I get very involved in some uh, more than others. But but that's only because I can, you know there's, a, there's just a limit to the amount of time one has in a day, and also because there are many of my team are equally good and uh, and need to run with their own projects and do so. You know. But your presence is very palpable and um, I'm just sort of wondering in this virtual world how you keep that energy and share that energy with everyone around you. Is it all like this on Zoom? <laughs> well, it's not easy, is it? Uh, I've, I've taken the social distancing walks now, now that we're allowed to, to meet others. But uh, So I try and do one of those every day with somebody or other. But, um, you yeah, know, we do a Zoom every morning. Every, sorry, not every morning, every once a week on a, on, a, on a Monday. We do the whole company, which is about 40 odd people. And then during the week, we would break down into different different shows. So we're, you know, we're any, at any one time, like any company, we're developing three or four or five different shows. And, you know, we have sort of our priority shows that we're trying to push hard. Uh, so that would be the writer would be actively finishing off the first script or maybe into a second script. I like to try and sell the two scripts if possible. I don't tend to take uh, money from broadcasters. I tend to, we're lucky because the Crown and the other other shows like Strikeback have provided a good financial uh, base to the company and that we're very lucky with that. So I tend to prefer to develop ourselves to get the show the way I want to do and then take it out. And increasingly these days you need to take, to sell uh, with as, as much of a package as you can. So two scripts is, is really a good idea, two good scripts and a real sense of where the first series goes. A bit of casting is also uh, very helpful these days, and maybe a director. It depends it depends on the, uh, on the on the director. But um, but uh, you know th these things vary. Sometimes in the old you know there have been times in the past when broadcasters didn't want package; they want to do it themselves. But right now uh, there's a, I think it's quite a conservative time, and and because people have so many people have moved from film into television, uh, they're all everything's getting packaged up. So you sort of in order to get in there. And kind of, you know, get uh, and, and be seen and be heard. You need some um, some striking cast. That's great, Andy. Um, so I wondered whether or not we could open to the uh, audience and answer some of the questions in the Q and A that uh, box that we have up there. Um, if you can uh, click in, there's. Um, Question here from Luke Davis, who's asking what advice you have for new producers working with an executive producer for the first time and how they can make the most of that partnership. Uh, well, I would say, <laughs> I don't know who, I don't know which executive producer you're working for. Try and choose one that one you like and two will teach something, I suppose, you know. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, that's the key, isn't it? All of television is a partnership. It's a massive collaboration and you've got to have a great team who see the same same vision. I am quite a good delegator, actually. I didn't quite answer that. I, 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 I have many faults, but delegation is not one of them. I, I'm not a control freak. I never have been. I like to, I like to, I do like my own, I, I like my ideas to be taken seriously, but I don't uh, insist on them. There are shows I've never got made, like The Talking Dog, which I still to this day defy uh, all the commissioners that we turned it down are wrong. <laughs> but anyway, that's another, whole, that's another whole saga. You don't want to go there. Well, although the next question from Nikki Adams here is how important it is to take risks on productions and have you ever taken something on that others turned down that was then a big success? Well, I think everything's a risk. I, I, I only like taking risks. It's all, it's all about risk. The whole thing's about risk. 
you know, I never gamble in real life. I could, I've been to Vegas many times and never put a penny on anything. I have absolutely no interest in gambling in any shape or form because I spend every day gambling. That's all I do. I'm gambling on an idea. I'm gambling on a writer. I'm gambling on a, putting a producer on the, on the show. It's just all a big gamble because every single show is different. And so every day is different and every project is different. And it, however much you learn, you only learn incrementally. You can't make a couple of shows go, I know how to do it. You don't know how to do it because the next writer may be very tricky or the next production may hit problems. You know, you can't always get it right. All you can do is strive to get it right and believe that you've got to aim high. Always got to aim high. Quality, quality, quality. You've got to get the best DOP, best designer, best editor. Editing, very, very important. I love editors. If I... You know, I really, I love being in the edit room, but I also love editors. I love the skill of editors. They are very, very talented people. We work with some really talented people. Um, um, there's a question here from Jacqueline Stephen who wants to know what the difference are, differences are being a producer for the UK and for the US, but not to do with the money. And I wondered if you could say whether the process is different when you're working with uh, commissioners and broadcasters. Well, I don't think so. But I think as many producers will know, Americans don't really understand the role of the creative producer. In America, all senior writers become showrunners and showrunners are deemed to be the producers of the show. So the, the role of creative producers is a, is a bit baffling to most Americans. They're just not used to it. And particularly if they're coming up, they're quite young, they've just come up through the system in America. So when they meet creative producers in the UK, uh, they don't really quite understand it. A non-writing a non non producer, wow, okay, we don't really have them. So they don't. But um, uh, so that is important, actually. We've been trying to initiate, I think, so Netflix UK understand it all right. They're trying to explain to, to uh, the Americans how an, a creative producer in the UK can work very well with a senior writer or a co, a co, in a co-role with a showrunning show writer. Um, many of the, our writers uh, in the UK um, don't want to showrun their shows. I mean, they want, to have a, they want to be an executive producer. They want to take an active role in it, and that, you know, which is how they should. They should be involved in the casting and the the general sense of execution, the choice of director and the final edits, but they don't necessarily want to be on the set. They don't necessarily want to look at the budget. They don't want to necessarily get over involved. They, they just want to write. I mean, that's why you're a writer. You want to write and create, not be bothered down with too many practicalities. So that's what a creative producer does, is able to work with that talent, reassure him or her and produce something fantastic. Um, there are so many questions here from uh, <laughs> young producers really asking for advice about how to break in, how to, um, how to deal with the current situation of uh, uncertainty about the implications of new guidelines and the pandemic and what production is going to look like. Um, obviously, you haven't been able to get back into production yet, but looking at the sort of guidelines that are being talked about, what... What do you think um, uh, people are going to have to be aware of, particularly those who are starting out and haven't done it before? Well, I, I have to say, I, look, I hate to be doomy and gloomy because I'm a very uh, optimistic guy. And, um, you know, every day is a new challenge and every day you've got to be up for that challenge and you've got to plough on. I, obviously, we are facing very challenging times. I mean, I don't know when we will be able to film, return to filming normally. I'm not sure whether we can film socially distanced. I can see that some productions could do it. Um, I'm not sure any of my sh uh, the shows that we're doing really would work, but we're looking at it very closely. Uh, obviously, we don't really know how long this is going to go on for. Um, I think it's going to be hard because I suspect 
that because all the big commissioners and broadcasters will have will be losing a lot of money that a lot of productions will be trimmed back uh, a lot of budgets will be trimmed i mean itv already announced they're taking 100 million out of their budget bbc have already indicated that they're having to tighten up and i mean when you when there are rumors of bbc4 being cut and it only costs 40 million you'll get some sense of the kind of difficulties that the BBC are facing in the next few years. And, and, you know, I think that's pretty sad if they cut BBC4 for just 40 million. So, you know, but um, so I think it, it, it's going to be tough for producers. Um, um, it's hard to pretend otherwise, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Um, and um, for, for the many questions here about submitting material to Left Bank and what you look for, it strikes me that essentially there's always an element of something you can personally relate to in the stories you tend to pick up. I mean, even if it's not direct, but, you know, the, the Manchester Ibiza component of White Lines was clearly, in, in some degrees, parts of lives that you had already led yourself, you know, starting off in Manchester, knowing Ibiza quite well. I'm just curious about the extent to which your slate reflects you. I suppose, it, I suppose inevitably it does a bit, uh, but I'm, we're very open to it. Yes, I mean, obviously it does in a sense, but, uh, you know, something like Quiz, I suppose, you know, I was at ITV at that time, 2001, when it, when it all went on, I was, I was running the drama, but the, I think it was such a big story. It was, it was you know, it convulsed ITV. It was sort of fantastic. But really, the, 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 you know, what, what was exciting about Quiz was James Graham. You know, he's a remarkable writer. I've had, I'd had developed one thing previously with James. I, I, I got to know him. And as soon as I heard he was going to do quiz, I just thought, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got, I've got an option there. Um, so uh, I didn't develop the play. I see there was one question about that. But I, but I, 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 I optioned the play uh, with, and then uh, with, with, um, with James adapting it, basically. Uh, I went to see the play, obviously, very, the first week it was on. And I, it was, I just, I, you know, didn't have any problem seeing it. I knew it would be... Fantastic. I was very lucky to get Stephen Frears, but then I got obviously a regular relationship with Stephen Frears. And it was, I, I, it was just one of those subjects I thought he would like. And luckily he was free. And, uh, you know, that's, you need a little bit of luck. You know, you know, you have to create your own luck, but you need a little bit of luck too. So it's a bit of both, isn't it? You've got, you've got to push, push, push. You know, never take no for an answer, ever. I never take no for an answer, unless I, unless I really want to take no for an answer. But if I don't want to take no for an answer, I absolutely don't. You know, I would, I would lie, in the, lie down in the middle of the road for, to get a show commission. I have well, that, to do so many times. But Andy, that does come from a certain confidence, doesn't it? Which um, success has enabled you to, to have. Um, it, for people at the beginning of their career, sometimes it's very hard to... Well, I, to, think it, I, I think, you know, looking back, it may be that, that sort of in, sense of instinct and confidence I had when I was in my 20s, which didn't appeal to Granada. I think they, they you know, they thought I was, you know, I, I, you, do you know what I mean? It's, you, age and confidence grows, but... Um, but it's not for everyone, you know, sometimes people just don't buy it or just don't get it. You know, you, you might be right, but people just don't want to hear it. That's, that's the truth, you know. When I have followed my instincts, 99% of the time, it's for the best. It works out well, really well. When I don't follow my instincts, when my instincts say don't do this, and I have done so, I have always regretted it. I've always regretted it. And so now I'm, you know, if I read something or I think of something, I hear an idea, if I react, wow, that's great, you know, uh, I you know, I just, we go for it straight away. Um, and, you know, it, it, it sort of starts to steamroll very, very quickly. And if I just don't get it, I mean, I always pass it on to someone else on my team. And I always say to them, you know, if anyone wants to champion the show, it's absolutely fine. But we just got to, you know, we've got to get it made. I mean, you've got, it's not just, you quite like the idea, can we sell it? 
you know, where are we going to sell it? How are we going to get it made? If it's just an idea, it's always who's the writer. I mean, there are a million good ideas. You know, you can stand in the shower and come out of the shower and write down 10 good ideas to make shows. It's not the idea that's the problem. It's the good idea married with the great writer. That's, that's the key. And then, and then it stems from that. that. That is the key to drama producing or comedy producing, whatever it is. That's the key. I mean, comedy is more talent. The talent that you, perhaps the, the, the performer is also the writer. And you know, that's, that's a great model too. Well, so many of these questions are about that, um, so about what you start with and, you know, how you find the writers. I mean, a question that is, is also being asked here is about availability. What, what do you do now that uh, there are so many busy people? Do you take, yeah. risks, on, do you take risks on new talent? How do you know? What are you looking for? Um, you know, it's really difficult. We go through ups and downs. We, we have a period we can't get a hold of any of the key writers we want. We decide to take risks. Sometimes that risk work out well, often they don't, but it's not a bad idea to try it. Sometimes those writers are just not ready to make the breakthrough, but you start a relationship with a writer and then they are. You know, there was a time when Peter Morgan wasn't the great writer he became. He was always a very decent writer, but you know, in his twenties, he was doing a bit of this and a bit of that, what have you. And then suddenly, you know, he flowers and he finds his voice and poof, he's on. And uh, there are many, many examples of that. Um, um, uh, uh, you just got to, I think you've turned, this is down to the same thing. When you meet writers, if you're a producer and you're looking for a partnership and you find a writer that you believe in, even if it's an early age, you should really work with that, that writer and see if you can help them take them to the next level. It might take a, you know, the, that writer might need to do some stuff on different series, might well, and, and, and um, it might take some time before he, his or her voice comes through and flowers. But if you're there at the right time, um, you'll be very glad to, and you'll be a part of that process and you'll be forever, you know, thrilled by it, basically. You know, it's a journey. I mean, Peter and I have basically been working together for, I don't know, 30 years. And, you know, it's like a marriage and you know, we have good times and bad times, you know. He loathes me sometimes and likes me other times, you know, and we, we, we're, we're kind of good for each other. And, but at the same time, we can do our own thing. It's, um, you know, and it was like that with Carolina Hearn and, and it was like that with Mike Bullen, who wrote The Cold Feet for me in the first place and all that stuff. You, you know, you have very close relationships. They're complex relationships, you know. Of course they are. Of course they are. It is like a marriage. It I'm, a, I'm not an intense person, but I get very involved um, because I like it, because I like being inside the creative process. Um, not so that I'm trying to direct it per se, but I want to be, I want to go on the journey. I wanna, I'm on the bus. You know, we're on the bus and we're going down the road and then we're going to park this bus at the end and when we park it, it's going to be made and it's going to be great. But you've got to keep saying yourself to that. There are also so many questions here about what the day-to-day -day experience of being a producer is like, which is obviously hard to describe when one's in, in lockdown, but it struck me that you do give those talents that you work with uh, a call every day. I mean, you are, you are very regularly engaged with the people who are working. Uh, yeah. And I think that's often something that producers tend to forget that they, it, it is a marriage and you do need to be very yeah. attentive. No, you do, you do, I do. Yeah, no, I have, uh, yeah, no, I had a long, long chat to Nick Hornby today. We're, we're, Nick Hornby and I are writing, uh, he's writing something for, for us at the moment. And so, yes, you, you, you have to become engaged in their, in, in, to, to an extent to their life because you're, they're 
they've made a decision to work do something for you you have a duty care of duty basically to make sure they're happy they've got everything they need and there's anything you can do for them you know and i'm a big fan of the lunch it's one of the big problems of lockdown lunch is <laughs> you know but i love a lunch a lunch with a writer is brilliant because you can chew the fat and you know spitball some ideas and discuss and gossip and all that kind of stuff i i you know i i think you know what you need in the world is thinking time you've got to allow yourself thinking time and um uh, set yourself a few goals each day uh, you can't achieve everything in fact I, I never achieve half the things i try to achieve but you've got to have a sort of goal or two of the day i will sell this or i will get this to netflix or i'll get this to amazon and all that kind of stuff and i the other thing is if you want to be if you are interested in the international marketplace going to LA is really, really important. I say this, obviously, when you can't go to LA, I appreciate that. And my sons who are active environmentalists do not encourage air, air, air flying and all that stuff. And that's uh, one of the things I have to, uh, in fact, they, weren't, they didn't want to eat the mangoes that I just bought because it'd been flown in from India, but that's something different. <laughs> but, but I, the, um, the, you know, going to LA, I, did, I was, oh, I traditionally go to LA sort of four or five times a year. And over the last, I don't know, 20 years, you know, I've met a lot of people uh, and, you know, I've driven around that town many, many times. And the truth is that many of the young assistants who would be fobbed off to see me when I was in the earlier days at, um, at Granada, um, and indeed the early days of Left Bank, have now become the commissioners. So, you, you know, as you get go on, those people move up. And so the people you've met in the early days become the people now important. But that's, that's helpful. Relationships in this business, very, very important. It, it really is. You can't, you can't underestimate the importance of knowing people and being good to people and helping people where possible and then, they'll, then and they help you. you know, you've got to be generous and you, you with your, with your uh, as much as possible with your time and your attitude. Um, you know, we, we, it's a competitive business, but I mean, life's too short to not to, you know, we're all in this together, you know, it's really important. The creative industries in the UK is one of the best and most exciting and most interesting industries we have and one of the most successful. And it's something we should be celebrating and as much as possible rebuilding after we come out of this pandemic because it's going to knock it badly. And, um, you know, we've got to got to push back and keep pushing on and keep making the shows that we can make. We, we punch above our weight very considerably in the, in the world business. And uh, it's something it's really important that we continue to do that. Um, well, I remember you telling me once that in terms of relationships and knowing people, that you hired assistants, but you gave them a very clear indication that they couldn't stay with you indefinitely, that there was a very fixed time that they would be your assistant, and then you wanted them to move on. And I wondered to what degree that has been a good policy in terms of training and spacing. <laughs> it doesn't help my memory. Uh, no, it's really, <laughs> I, I, I'm very lucky that many, uh, they're two years, they only do two years. They have to do two years when they come. It takes about six months to work it out, and, 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 and for about 12 months they really like it, and then six months they really resent it. Um, uh, and many, many of, uh, I don't know how many ex-assistants are working at Left Bank, there's quite a few, uh, and they've all done incredibly well. Um, you know, again, you know, I, I like to try and help people move through the business. You come in as an assistant, then hopefully you, in two years' time you get a shot at being a junior script editor, and if you do really good, you'll, you'll keep moving up. Um, 
a lot of people here are also asking how you learned the financial side of the business. It's very clear how you learned the creative side of it and your passion for selling. But in, in, in terms of the deal making and... Um... Usually, I'm a bit dyslexic. I'm not really very good on the bottom line. I'm not, uh, any, uh, you know, finance is not something... I've never studied any accountancy or anything like that. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's a good question, really. I think I've always been quite entrepreneurial, but I, but I never unleashed my entrepreneurial uh, skills. I mean, I suppose I did a bit at Granada when I was there within the Granada structure, or the ITV structure, I should say. I mean, the ITV latterly, when I was uh, running drama and comedy at ITV. But, but it was all for ITV. Uh, I think when you were set up the company, we set it up in 2007. Lots of people said we were mad because it was obviously the height of the recession. But... It seemed to be nothing to lose. I didn't really care. You know, we only pay, we just, you know, we had a deal, no lunches, no expenses, no taxes, unless absolutely necessary. You know, uh, we, didn't, we didn't pay ourselves very much money. We, we really had, we gave ourselves a couple of years to try and make it. And that was kind of thrilling. I, I, I loved that actually in those early days. I was amazed when somebody came along and wanted to buy the company. I did not set up the company to be bought. That's not what I did. I, I set it up to have a lot of fun and to make the shows I wanted to make and to be freed of some of the strictures of working for Granada uh, towards the end. I mean, ITV towards the end, there was a, a spell of management that I wasn't very keen on and um, I made a few adverse comments in The Guardian and was threatened with <laughs> being kicked out. So I thought I better, I better go. But, uh, you, know, there, you know, these things go through different spells and in different times and so on. I, 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 it's hard to answer that really, I suppose. I, I, it's, I, one of the things I do care a great deal about everyone who works for us. So therefore I'm very driven by making sure that they are well paid and they are part of the company. You know, we, we share the, the, the top 10 of the of left bank share, in a, have a, a, a genuine um, sharing scheme. And when, and when the next uh, uh, chunk of our contract ends with Sony, they all get paid out and they deserve to get paid out if, we, if we're still selling the shows. And um, so it's very important to me. I don't want people, I want people to come to left bank and stay with left bank if they're good. And, uh, and they do, people don't leave left bank. Um, it was funny because Sony really didn't understand that initially. They, they, they couldn't understand it. Why, why did I want to do all that? But I knew jolly well that if you have really good people and I have really, really good people, that they would all be poached and they would be offered more money at different companies or gone to Netflix or whatever it is. And that's no good. You've got to run, you've got to run a progressive company. Uh, mindful of the realities of, the, of, 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 a, of an entrepreneurial world. But that model of the super indies or the independent production companies that retain rights or that build up a catalogue or sell the company, how is that going to fare for new producers in the streamer world where there's a different, whole different um, way of structuring? Well, it's, it's interesting that, I mean, I would have said, you know, that that is that that is, it's it's less easy to do what we did now because it's very hard to 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 hold on to rights now. That is the big change over the last two or three years. You've seen broadcasters really say no. So all the work we did in the UK to allow independence to have their rights, or ITV and BBC to give the rights to independence, which was magnificent, and build companies, has all been sort of eroded because the bulk of the commissioners now are obviously the streamers like Amazon and Netflix, Apple. Uh, and Disney, and they won't give any rights whatsoever. So now we're all sort of starting to move to um, to uh, a fee-bearing basis. It's, it's really a for us for, for hire basis. Now, you know that's not you know that's not ideal. And unless you get big fees, it's it's harder to build a successful company that's really going to make tons of money. But 
if you have a, a big hit show or two, you can still do well. I mean, 11 films, some people will be aware of, who do sex education, only started a few years ago, but they've done incredibly well, and they've just recently sold to Sony for quite a chunk of change. So, you know, it still can be done if you are lucky enough to focus your business um, uh, and, and set up uh, a, a couple of successful series. One successful series will really get you going. If you get to two, you, you're doing really well, and anything more than two, you're doing very, very well. Um, there will be a lot of companies that are, will struggle to find that big one series and, it, and I, I suspect over the next couple of years a lot of companies will either have to merge or rethink how they're working. Um, but in the end, um, we are going to go through some tougher times, um, but you know, ingenuity, creativity and, and, and sheer uh, guts and entrepreneurial skills are going to be what's going to what get people through. Um, you know, it still can be done. You know, there is still a big appetite for British shows. That's the truth. All British-based shows, whether you whether you shoot them here or shoot them elsewhere. Well, I mean, Andy, it's, I think this has been so illuminating on every level. This conversation, uh, I see, there are still hundreds of questions <laughs> that people have got to ask. Many of which are very specific to their own experiences. Some of which are about how you work with HODs and directors in particular, and choose your music. Um, I don't know whether there's anything in particular that you feel we haven't covered that you'd like to cover, um, but. Um, no, I mean, on, on, on talent like uh, 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 composers and um, HODs, I mean, obviously we do, like most companies use, there are uh, casting directors and, and composers that we re regularly return to who, because they do such great work for us. And I, I love having long-term relationships where appropriate, but it's always important to introduce new, new people as well, you know? Um, it's just that, you know, the, 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 you, you get a certain comfort, obviously, when you've got long-term relationships with people, like, as with writers, really. You know, you know what a composer can do, but, um, um, but one should always be open to new... So many questions, Jesus Christ. Well, <laughs> no, I, uh, it's very kind, I, I, all of you out there. It's so weird talking from my spare bedroom, <laughs> where uh, to, to people I can't see you and I don't know quite exactly... But I don't know what the mix is of actors and producers and directors and writers and and others so i'm sorry and i i, I um you know it's it's much more um enjoyable usually with a live audience because you can sort of feel what people are interested in and can make a few more jokes but if i make jokes i don't know whether they're landing or whether it's just to come off my head um I, i'm not off my head i haven't had a gin and tonic yet but i will do fairly soon well uh, i think we'll take advantage of that andy and let you go and have a gin and tonic now and um to say thank you very much for your time your honesty uh, and the benefit of your experience i know everyone at bafta and i think in the audience is really grateful for the time you've given us it's a pleasure thank you and thank you if you if you're listening and watching i appreciate it thank you very much i hope i've been helpful in some way before Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.